0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with
1: Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show today is Dr. Doug Garland. He's a clinical professor of orthopedics at the University of Southern California and the former director of the Spinal Cord and Traumatic Brain Injury Units at a world-renowned rehabilitation center. He's also the author of The Tall Poppy Syndrome, a modern guide to an ancient metaphor. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Tom. Um, Welcome back, Doug. I would encourage the audience to listen to last week's podcast because Dr. Garland um, is one of my mentors. He was my chief of um, the head trauma service at Ranch Las Vegas Hospital back in 1983 when I was a resident there. And he wrote a book called The Tall Poppy Syndrome, and we discuss it in some detail, but this book he wrote is fascinating because it's such a great history book, but it goes right to the core of the human experience is that we all want world peace at some point, but we don't allow each other to actually enjoy peace. We actually take a lot of energy put into actually making each other sort of miserable, cutting each other down is a bit of a problem. So what I started about this book is that Dr. Garland is a researcher. He's published over 110 articles He's currently retired and living in Southern California. And we wrote a paper together on what's called heterotopic ossification, which is excess calcification in patients with head trauma. He also worked a lot on spinal cord injury. But what I'm impressed with is the depth of his research, going into detail after detail after detail. And I had written something years ago called the myth of self-esteem, which I think is the worst concept ever propagated on the human race. Um, This book about the tall poppy syndrome is about envy. Um, I said years ago that if the world is going to be compassionate, that's fine. But it's an intellectual construct. But this unconscious thing called jealousy, envy, and anger just wipes it off the map. So I think it's an important contribution because he goes in this deep detail about the depth and the history of this what's called the tall poppy syndrome. And uh, welcome back, Doug. And I. That We could talk about this for a very long time, and we will in
2: the future. But can you redefine for the audience the tall poppy syndrome, just briefly? So the tall poppy syndrome, the metaphor is seeing a poppy field and seeing a poppy that's taller than the rest or a few taller. And you want to bring that poppy down, cut that poppy down so that the field is, is equal. Now, the... Envy is the driver of the tall poppy syndrome. And there's two types of envy, good envy and bad envy. And the good envy really would be to see that tall poppy and want to become like the tall poppy. So I want to be like Michael Jordan. That's, But we never hear about that. And that's probably more uncommon. So the bad envy is typically a person with low self-esteem, and I think we're gonna discuss a big part of how you get low self-esteem, but the low self-esteem person feels that they can't become that tall poppy, so instead it's easier to cut them down, which is what drives our society, politics, everything right now. We're canceling everybody out that's tall, but it's from bad envy, uh, usually found in the low self-esteem person.
0: So let's talk about self-esteem for a second. It's a judgment pattern, and every second you're judging yourself better than or worse than, and your self-esteem comes from putting somebody else down. But you're looking for approval from somebody who gets self-esteem from putting themselves down, but you need approval. So you're looking for approval. You get self-esteem from withholding approval, and it's just a horribly vicious cycle. But I want to talk about what's called the A-scores, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which now in California has been mandated to be done by all pediatricians. And a high A score, and I'll have you define this in a second, is associated with early mortality, heart disease, anxiety, suicide, all sorts of medical problems are associated with an average of experience and score. And it comes into the tall poppy syndrome because I did find out very late in my career that I, I always, always thought if a person get better in a family that the family would be excited and support the person who's getting better. Almost universally, nobody in the family was really supportive of somebody getting better. It was unbelievable. And we'll get into that in a second, but I wanna focus this next discussion really on the family dynamics around the tall poppy syndrome. And I found out that the family dynamics were the strongest thing holding people back, but if you could flip it, which is a different conversation, is also incredibly powerful pulling people out of chronic pain. But the, the family dynamics were a huge, huge deal in chronic pain. So, Doug, could you explain the A score briefly to the audience?
2: So, uh, generally, when the A score was first devised, there were twelve adverse experiences, and the higher the A score, pretty much the lower your self-esteem went. So, adverse events in a family would be uh, one of the family is an alcoholic. One of the is a drug abuser one of the family has a records a police record uh divorce is actually a point
1: um
2: childhood pregnancy is a point so any of the negative factors other than the tv show of the perfect family is a point against you and as once you just as a score of three Uh, If you have three adverse events type people in your family, um, you're going to have a troubled past and present because your self-esteem goes down the tube. And with the low self-esteem, you have bad envy. Um, You have a lot of anger. Uh, 10% of anger turns to violence. So, you can have a lot of violence in your future. And the, this low self-esteem drives um, the tall poppy syndrome, but there's a similar syndrome called the crabs in the bucket. Right. And the crabs in the bucket means that you don't need a lid on a bucket because if you put crabs in a bucket, as they try to escape, there's other crabs pulling them back. So the, there's never going to be a tall poppy, a tall crab, because the others are cutting it down. And that's frequently the, the dynamics in a family that nobody wants somebody to be successful within the family and be better than somebody else.
0: Right. Now, it's remarkable how powerful that it is, because your powerful, most powerful relationships, of course, are with your family, And so they're your greatest support system, but they're also your greatest triggers. So I just want to tell one quick story of a woman I took care of about 15 years ago, and she had bipolar, chronic pain, disability. She was actually paralyzed by an operation, a spine surgery that that was a big problem that she probably didn't need, had a post-operative disc rupture, um, caught and paralyzed. And I worked with her for a couple of years and we did it. We did the exercises in the doc journey, we worked with her, we were diligent, we gave her some structure. And she came off her bipolar meds, her chronic pain disappeared. She actually wanted to buy a computer and start helping other people out of chronic pain. It was really a remarkable story. And she was a tough, tough patient. And so we're excited about that. And then she came back after a Thanksgiving holiday, totally decimated and she disappeared. So I called her and go, what happened? And honestly, she went home for Thanksgiving, her, her family says, you're bipolar, you're disabled, you can't get better. They actually told her, you cannot get better. So that, that was actually my first hint how powerful the family dynamics are and were in a family blew me away. Then I started watching this more frequently and over and over and over again, people start getting better, quite a bit better. And the family family would pull them right back into the hole. It was unbelievably consistent. So one of my questions to ask you, Doug, and I, know I tried to look at this data and I couldn't find it. But there's some statistics out about what percent of people are genuinely happy with other people's success. Do you know that number by chance? I I read it years ago. I can't remember it. No,
2: but I'm sure it's pretty low. You you, you know, your parents do that subconsciously. They, you know, that's always a question. Which child did you like the best in the family? You know, I love all of them equally. So they they have a hard time trying to make each one a tall poppy. So they also have this negativity towards success because they hate to have one better than the other. And I can tell you, it ends up in society. So we'll call the UCLA basketball team a family. So which they are. And John Wooden, the greatest coach of any sport ever with 10 national championships, John Wooden never named a captain to the team. He understood emotion. That was the reason he won so many championships. He knew discipline and emotion, but he never named a captain because he knew if he named a captain, that person, there would be tremendous envy on the team and they would be subverting him. So it wasn't until the last season, Bill Walton was there, he had won Two championships, they lost. They should have won a third one. Um, But all the players left that team except one. And John John Wooden's final year, that holdover, became the only time he named a a team captain for the entire year. Normally, he would pick a captain before the game, and that person would be a captain for one day only which is really fascinating psychology and understanding emotions.
0: You know, that is, that is really interesting. Huh, yeah, I mean, it's in, so I'm just curious, I mean, to me, God, you know, thirty some years of practice to figure this out, to start seeing it. And what we found out in the family dynamics is that I wrote, again, the crab bucket's the real thing where you one crab tries to climb out and several other crabs pull it back in. And so we started figuring out people who actually would get quite a bit better and they would hit a, hit a point where it, it was a problem. But we also found out a bunch of things were happening with the family dynamics. First of all, the person in pain would complain about their pain all the time. Second of all, they would use their pain as a manipulative tool to get other people to work for them and do things for them. And then the family who would have compassion fatigue, there's nothing they could do. So they would feel helpless and trapped. Then in a way not that the person was overtly doing it or consciously doing it, but the person became sort of a bully. And so what would happen is that we use this incredible negative dynamic of just being worn out by the person complaining. And so instead of family being a support system, then it, it was the other way around. They sort of resented this person pretty badly. But then my question to ask you is okay, the person, the people are tired of being bullied. They're frustrated. And then the person gets better, and they still resist it. What's all that about?
2: Well, it's it's dependency. And they're actually elevating their own self-esteem by keeping that person's self-esteem low. I mean, Woody Allen, in one of his movies, goes to the psychiatrist, and he goes, the psychiatrist, what's your problem? Well, I don't have a problem. Well, why are you here? Well, my brother thinks he's a chicken. And the psychiatrist says, Well, why don't you tell him he's not a chicken? And Woody on the couch thinks a while. And finally he discovers, well, I like the eggs. (laughs) So within that family dynamics, they like the eggs. I mean, it's just wonderful, that metaphor. So the family, uh, like the hierarchy that was established within that family and everybody's role in it. So nobody wants change to include the family.
0: Interesting. I mean, one of the reasons that honestly drives me in my project a lot is that anger, which is connected with chronic pain is abusive. And the essence of abuse is lack of awareness. And so, That's why I think the self-esteem, everything is so deadly, because if I'm judging you, I'm labeling you, positive or negative, all sorts of labels come on. and When you put a label on anything, you you cannot see who that person is anymore. So the essence of healthy relationships is awareness. The essence of blocking awareness is anger and labeling. And I have a book I give to all my patients. I read it myself regularly. It's called The Way to Love, which is actually The Way to Awareness. And, and DeBell is considered one of most brilliant thinkers of all time, but really caught my attention. He said, labels block awareness, period, even if they're good labels or bad labels. So you say, well, this guy's such a great guy. Well, you don't really know that person. That person just says something that inside you triggers something positive or negative. That's all you know. So what happens when, you, for instance, he says, it's one thing to say a person's a drunk versus a person who drinks too much. So when you label somebody a chronic pain patient, you're you're not going any all of a sudden you block awareness there. But when you get this whole interaction in the so, but the essence of being a family that's functional, rich and enjoyable is awareness. So then you get into the A scores, low self esteem. You get this game going back and forth a thousand different directions on a given day.
2: How do you think you break out of this? Well, that's that's the essence of the problem. Um, And it's in your book, it's the, um, what the syndrome is called, I forget, there's a research thing, but anyway, the ACE families uh, usually have anger. So that's learned behavior. So the, the huge problem then, because that person's memory bank is all based on his observation of that ACE relationship and the anger within any family. And that's immediately the emotion they turn to. And I forget that it's in your book. Um, we'll have to look it up if you're not going to remember. But it's a they call it the unbiased syndrome or something. Uh, I
0: don't I just, uh, I've got it started somewhere. somewhere. I'm not feeling good about myself right now. I'm not remembering my own book. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. But
2: anyway, anyway, that's that's what's happened. There's a lot of anger in the family, in the family, in the Ace family, and so that becomes their natural pathway. They learn that's learned behavior, and that that becomes part of them.
0: Did you just call Poppy me?
2: <laughs> Subtly.
0: You've grown like too really, much. It wasn't, it wasn't you, so you,
2: you've grown too much since you were a lonely resident.
0: <laughs> so, okay, so let's just back up for a second. It's Cause I am I'm, I'm actually a little bit speechless of trying to say how critical I think this book is, how it goes right to the core of the human existence. And the question is: we talk about world peace, we talk about treating people equally, etc. And you look at these behavioral patterns and it's impossible. Now, the question is that I think the challenge is to me personally, I did recognize the fact that I had that bad envy for a long time. And it has switched dramatically, I guess, since I went through so much stuff myself, is that my situation was so desperate. And I'm just happy if I can help somebody out of the same hole. So it really switched completely. That If somebody does well, I'm excited. Because that means I help somebody just contribute a little bit better to the human consciousness maybe just one person, maybe 10, whatever it is, that if I can do that, make the world a little bit better place, I I like that. I'm excited about that. And if they go a long ways with it, that's great. Even with the effort I have now with the DLC journey, with Virtus, the whole process I'm trying to do, if my quote competition is doing well, that's great. And because there's so much work to be done in this world. So, but going back to the whole process with these A scores, average childhood experiences right now, There's only 30% of Americans have an A score of zero and 36% have an A score of three or more. And then we look at the instance of domestic violence within the home is like 28 to 32% for both males and females, physical, domestic, lifetime chance of violence. So these are people you supposedly love and you're being triggered like crazy. You're getting, I mean, I swear it doesn't matter what, social status you're at whether you're worth billions of dollars or off the street (laughs) i swear to god it's like the norm for the family is chaos i mean i I came from a chaotic family my a score happened to be five which is high but i talked to these patients maybe because they're chronic they're patients in pain that the chaos is in these families but it's almost like it's normalized that families fight and i don't think that's so great i think that's a bad way to be But I can't tell you right there in the office, people just mix it right up. So to me, it's a really critical issue here. Bring it, I mean, there's a societal stuff that we can talk about, which is a big deal. But I think the society is the collective consciousness of society is reflecting what's happening right there in the family. And so I do think there's some work that can be done in the family process. And I think the tall poppy syndrome calls this really right out. But I don't think most doctors, including myself, training, realize how powerful this force is to keep people in the illness mode. How are you going to solve illness if you can't help people get better within your own family? It's really a big, a big problem.
2: No, I, I mean, I agree 100%. And it, it's just, I mean, if you look at the Bible, the Bible is nothing but failure and bad emotions. And here's a very important book on how to be a Christian. And when you're looking at it, it's very hard to detect Christianity in it. And so it is, I don't know why, so very hard to to be good. And it's very easy to be bad. So when I talk about the tall poppy syndrome and I explain it to people, almost everybody says, oh, yeah, that happened to me. So it's pervasive in our society. But my most common thing that I like people to think about is why do manufacturers put locks on cars? And the answer is, is to keep honest people honest. Because you and I won't, if the door is locked, we won't work to get in. It'll keep us honest. But trust me, it doesn't keep the burglar out of the car. So the crook is still the crook, but we need all these signposts to be good people and understanding the tall poppy syndrome helps you be good people. I agree,
0: but I also think another factor that helps the tall poppy syndrome is acknowledging that the darkness exists in every human being. I mean, it is the way we're programmed right from birth to compete, is how all living creatures survive is by competition and I only think, and I'm, I mean, I, you, you cannot really change unless you know it already exists within you. So like I said, in the first podcast, my challenge to the audience is this, I mean, I don't like the fact that I have had bad envy from tall poppy syndrome. Um, it's like one fraction of what it was 20 years ago, mostly it just got running out of me, but it's still there. And so becoming aware of what's actually there in your unconscious brain is really critical. You're not going to solve it. Just becoming aware that it's there allows you to become a better person. And that's my challenge to the audience of so just, you know, maybe write it down even just find out the ways when you pass that kind of fear that, that got pulled over, how do you feel? You know, I mean, it's there. And I don't know of, I think it's just the nature of the way we're raised as humans so the human race is going to change. I think, again, that's why I think your book is so critical. I'm looking at the depth of penetration of the syndrome into the population, how it affects human history, both at a societal level, family level, and personal level. It's really critical to be aware before you can change anything. And that's what I really see the huge value of this book.
2: Well, I thank you. I agree. I agree. It, it's really, it's, certainly made me more self-aware, which I'm sure when you read it, you became more self-aware. And I also like the whole idea of your book of writing writing experiences down. And I mean, when you look at something or have something happen, I like the idea of writing it down and look, and look critically looking at it. I mean, I look at now more of almost everything I do. I, I've just developed that uh, habit. It's like I count calories. So I developed that a long time ago, and it's subconscious. When I look at a meal, I've already counted how much I'm going to eat. And so the book really helped me uh, self evaluate myself, hopefully, to make me better by most of my actions. And you're right about the world leaders. If you look, when I go through the world, um, which maybe we can do next time how to be able to How my process was to how to evaluate the tall poppy syndrome and how can I look at a situation and understand it but uh, it becomes um uh, Self improvement. I, I mean, once you write down the negative things, you, you get rid of those, and you just automatically become more positive about your envy. You automatically build. It's hard to, you know, it's it's much harder to to be number one in your medical class than it is to dump on that person that's number one.
0: Right. No, exactly. Well you're right about the self-improvement thing is that as you see, if you're just trying to achieve, let's go back to the A score in self-esteem for a second. I did this. I mean, you overachieve, you accomplish different things and what you're doing, you're doing a bypass over your lack of self-esteem and by actually absorbing what's really there and just simply choosing a different direction, it's a completely different energy. So it's much more grounded it's focused. And at the end of the day, you you don't really, I mean, I honestly can say this pretty clearly. I mean, I want to still be really honest about what's still in there about the top hobby syndrome, but I really want people to do well. I want my kids to do well. I want the world to do well. And obviously the better the world does, the better my families will do better. You'll do better my friends will do. So it's really flipped completely for me from a tall poverty syndrome to just really wanting people to do well. Each person that does well is a better part of the human consciousness. And the human race is not gonna really change until they become really aware of what has already been. And so I think this, again, an awareness is really critical to develop because with neuroplasticity, people that have read my book know there's awareness separation then redirecting so you have to become aware. Okay, I'm I'm doing this. I'm a top. I just I'm a cutter. I just cut down cut down somebody either mentally or subconsciously whatever. Then create create a little bit of a space and just create just that awareness <clears throat> creates the space. Then you just choose to go a different direction. Like you said, with counting calories, eventually becomes pretty automatic. That I've now become aware when I'm in that cutter syndrome. How do I look to other people? What's my appearance like to other people? So I've switched awareness. To visualize how people are looking at me when I'm acting a certain way, which has been extremely humbling, by the way, but um, again, another little bit of a useful tool. But yeah, this awareness of what part of top poppy syndrome exists within you can have a major impact on you personally, but also your family, which is a big deal. So, any um, Doug, any final words on this? I mean, this book goes on in so many different directions; it's hard to even grasp what we're trying to say, but. Um, I'm really I'm excited about it. I think it's a great little addition to the world's literature here. Well,
2: it's just the you're talking about really abundant scarcity, which I like to talk about a lot too. I mean, so in a fan, in any family, it should be of abundance. There's a room room for a tall poppy. Every child should be a tall poppy. and we and government, especially right now, has become a zero. Zero sum game, meaning that uh, if one person's tall, one person has to be small or there has to be 20 people small to equal the one that's tall. So let's cut that tall one down and and give uh, the small poppies more room to grow. But that's a bad concept because I'm with you. I want everybody in the world to be happy and tall and there's room for everybody to be happy and tall. So right. how can we achieve that without cutting somebody else
0: right. down? Well, I thank you very much. It's been really enjoyable for me to reconnect with you after what it's been like—what thirty-five years we actually talked. been a while. So at least I recognize you. That's a good sign mm-hmm. for me that I am still have my wits about me. So that's good. And uh, so anyway, thank you very very much. I think it's a great contribution. Your scholar your scholarly approach is clearly shown through beautifully here. And uh, we really appreciate it. So it's The Tall Poppy Syndrome by Douglas Garland. His website is DougGarland.com. And uh, you'll find this a very interesting read just from a purely historical standpoint in addition to everything else. So thank you.
2: My pleasure. Good seeing you again.
1: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Doug Garland, for being on the show today and for telling us more about the relationship between the tall poppy syndrome, self-esteem, self-improvement, and the family dynamic. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com.
0: Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.